All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful day you have given us, Lord. Thank you for the time and the ability to be able to come together, whether it's in person or online. Lord, thank you that we can come to worship you. We thank you, Lord, that you are worthy of praise. Thank you, Lord God. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts today. Teach us and remind us of your goodness, Lord. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle, what? In my eye. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Is there a statement that's more reassuring than that statement? Right? If someone was to tell you something and you weren't sure whether to trust them or whether it was going to happen, but they said to you, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. What more assurance can you possibly have, right? I mean, who would risk telling a lie and stick a needle in their eye? Who would want to endure a needle in the eye, right? They must be telling the truth. It must happen, right? Or if someone was to say to you, I swear on my mom. I mean, it's got to be true, right? Who would risk the safety and the welfare of their mother, right? Especially if they passed away. Then it's like, oh, you have to believe them, right? Is that true? I'm a little being a little sarcastic, right? What if someone says to you, I give you my word. How much is that worth, right? How much is that worth? When someone is saying something to you and you're trying to think about whether or not you can trust their word, if they say, I promise, right? Your confidence is supposed to go from 50-50, do I trust them or not? Do I believe them or not? But if they say, I promise, it's, it's, it's kind of implied that your assurance is supposed to go from 50-50 to maybe 50-90, right? You're promising. They're giving you their word. It's a, it's a term of assurance, right? Confidence. Now, if someone was to say something to you that they were going to do something or something was going to happen, if it doesn't happen you're probably disappointed. You might be disappointed, right? They say something to you or they said they were gonna do something and it doesn't happen. You might be disappointed that it doesn't happen, right? But if they promise, I promise you I will do this. I promise you this is going to happen. You probably will be a little bit more disappointed because they said they promise, right? Promises. Promises can either build confidence or destroy confidence, right? If someone promises you, promises can either reinforce trust in somebody or they can cause distrust when they don't follow up with their promises, right? Promises kept are investments of trust, right? 
When someone keeps their promise, it's like an investment in trust with that person. But broken promises, broken promises can leave devastation, right? Faithful relationships are built on kept promises, right? Faithful relationships are built on kept promises, but broken and unfulfilled promises can ruin relationships. How many of us can testify to that, right? Faithful relationships are built on fulfilled, kept promises, but broken, unfulfilled promises can destroy and ruin relationships. Last week we looked at how when God, what does it say in in chapter eight, verse one? God remembered Noah and his family and all the animals in the ark, right? It said God remembered. What does that mean, God remembered? It doesn't imply that God could have forgotten. It doesn't imply that God could have neglected Noah and his, he, he, he got distracted by something. He got busy with other things or he changed his mind about what he said he was gonna do. That's not what it's implying when it says God remembered, right? When we think of God remembered, that's what we think of, right? Remember, in other words, don't get distracted. Don't forget. Don't, don't do other things and not do what you said you would do. What it means when it says God remembered is that he put his actions to his words. He fulfills, he's fulfilling what he said he would do. He put his actions to the words he said he was going to do. The Lord kept his word. He kept his word in bringing judgment upon the world for his sinfulness, but he also kept his word in keeping Noah, his family, and the animals safe in the ark. God kept his word. There's no disconnect between his word and his actions. There's no disconnect there, right? And for us, we're, 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 we're you know, we have our moments. Sometimes we keep our word, sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's not intentional. But there's no disconnect between God's word and his actions. That's why it's important for us to know his word and his promises, what he promises he would do. Because if God says he will do it, he will do it, right? So what we saw is the Lord initiated a covenant with Noah back in chapter six. He initiated a covenant with Noah to enter the ark. And the Lord will fulfill his promises, what he said he was going to do. And here we're gonna see that God is gonna hold to his covenant as Noah exited the ark. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter nine. Genesis chapter nine. We'll start at verse one. It says this, right after I take a sip of water. And God blessed Noah. So they already exited, they just exited the ark, if you remember, right? And the first thing Noah did exiting the ark, what did he do? He built an altar and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. All right, honoring, recognizing the Lord. Nine verse one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I give the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So we saw in last message, we saw how the flood event reminds us of the creation account. Remember that? How we see the flood event reminds us, it's like echoes of the creation account. But it was a reversal of what God had done in creation. If you remember, and you don't have to write all these sounds, it was from last week as well. If you remember from creation, right, the waters initially covered the earth. Then God separated the waters, the, the waters from the sky and waters from the earth. And he separated, creating the atmosphere, right? God separated the land from the waters. He said, let the land appear. So he separated land from waters. And then he created the animals, the birds of the sky. And then he created the land and animals from the ground, right? Animals. And then eventually what? He created man, right? But here what we see in the flood account. The waters again will cover all the earth. God brings the waters together, right? The waters from the sky as it rains 40 days and 40 nights. But he also, what, opened up the fountains of the deep. So the waters, again, is coming together. God covered the land with the waters. Where he once separated, he covered it back up. God did not spare the animals outside the ark. And then man also returned to the land in death as well. So we see these echoes of creation God bringing it back to the beginning. And I mentioned, why didn't God just wipe out everything, right? right, Why did God do it this way? Why why didn't he just wipe it all out, right? It didn't work out the first time. So why didn't he just start all over from scratch, right? You know how you do this. Maybe you draw something, you're writing something, and it's just not right. So what do you do? Crumble it all up and you throw it away. Let me start over. God didn't choose to do that. Why? Well, one... I suppose, is that what God created was what? It was good. In other words, there was nothing wrong with what God had created. It was good. He didn't have to wipe it all out and start over as if it didn't work out, right? It didn't work. There was something wrong with how he created. There was nothing wrong with what he created, but he brought judgment upon the earth and upon man, but with the opportunity for renewal. He brought judgment, but with the opportunity to be renewed, renewal, to start again. So despite this judgment, his intentions in creation will still be fulfilled. What he said in the beginning will be fulfilled. Look at what we see here, how we continue to see echoes of creation when God blesses Noah and his sons, right? In chapter one, verse 22 in creation, right? In Genesis, 
God said, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So he created the flying creatures and the fish of the seas. And he said, multiply, be fruitful, fill the waters. And in verse 28 of chapter one, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's talking to man and woman, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves. Another, so God's initial blessing, his intention was to fill the earth, multiply. Fill this, my earth, my planet with life. And here exiting the ark, God's blessing is the same. 9 verse 1, what does God say to Noah? God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He says it again in verse 7 and asks for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. See, God repeats his blessing from the very beginning, his first intentions still remains the same. He blesses Noah and his sons. Be fruitful. In other words, have at it. Enjoy what I've given you. Fill the earth. <coughs> God created this vast planet, right? To be habitable to be able to perpetuate life, to live in it. This planet was created so that we can live and live fruitfully and live abundantly. I think it's offensive to God when man claims that this planet was created or it came into being out of accidental series of events like it was so random thing. Like this one lone habitable planet in this universe was just all like by coincidence. I would imagine it's very offensive to God because he created intentionally and he says live and be abundant in this planet. Fill this planet I have given you with life. And I think society and much of culture today, modern culture today, have lost this sense of value and intention by God to live abundantly, multiply and fill the earth. On one end, you may have some couples who would die, who would give anything to have a child, right? They would give more than anything to have a child. Maybe they couldn't have a child and work out whatever for whatever reason, and they would love to be able to have a child. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, you have some people who would do anything to avoid having children. <laughs> like, we don't want kids. We see them in the playgrounds, we see them in the stores, we see them with, wrestling with their parents, and we don't want any of that, right? Or we can maybe handle one. <laughs> That's all we can handle, right? Maybe one. How about just a dog? Maybe just a dog, right? You have this spectrum. I think as a society and a culture, and I think this is the plan of the enemy, we lose the value of life. 
That's not the mentality that God had intended for us to have. In today's culture, we think about finances. Who can afford to have kids these days? It's pretty expensive. Who can afford to have a bunch of kids? That's expensive. How can that family do that? And we lose the sense of blessing. The blessing it is to have children. The blessing it is to have multiple children. We think it's a hassle, a burden, instead of a blessing from God. I think it's an interesting, I had an interesting thought about eternity. Now this is not doctrine, okay, so don't hold me to this. Uh, But I had the thought that we're assuming that there's no reproduction in eternity, right? There's no giving in marriage, and so I assume we're not gonna be reproducing in heaven, okay? Um, And if God's intention was for us to fill the earth, God said, you know, I want you to fill the earth, live in my earth in fullness. I had this thought, like, you know, Lord, are you kind of like waiting for the eternal new heaven and the new earth to be to that point where it's gonna be filled with people? You know, like there's no reproduction, so he's waiting for that last point. It was like, okay, the numbers are complete. It's time. If you're following me, perhaps that's interesting. If you're not following me, it's not important, okay? But I just had that thought that God's intention was to fill this earth, to populate, to multiply. And in one day, his new earth will be filled with his people who desired to be with him, to worship him. I had that thought. Another thought, you know, last night we, our family celebrated Jamie's birthday, and as we were walking out, we saw, I saw a sign uh, on the wall, on the street, and the sign said, we will not have water forever, so conserve water. I thought that was kind of a funny thought, uh, funny, not funny, but I saw that, and I thought, that's interesting. We're not gonna have enough water forever, so conserve as much as possible. And I thought, you know what? There's a difference between a biblical worldview and a worldview that's outside of God's intention. Because I believe as God created our planet, he created our planet to have enough water for us to live abundantly, right? For me personally, okay, yeah, I'm gonna conserve water because I don't have to pay for more water than I need to. Okay, I'm going to want to keep the beaches waters clean because if I swim in it, I don't want to swim in garbage, right? That makes sense. I'm not worried that our planet is going to run out of water because I believe God will sustain us and give us as much life as he chooses to keep us here on this earth. I'm not worried about some cataclysmic like global warming that all the water is going to be evaporated and we're not going to have enough water to live. I'm not worried about that. God created this planet so that we may live and live abundantly. Now, how we do so is another topic, and it's not in this message. Verse 2. All right, that was my kind of like digressions here a little bit. Look what he says in verse 2. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast on the earth and of every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh, or I'm sorry, and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given. So here we see another echo of creation, right? When God created, he commissioned man and woman to rule over the, rule over the creatures of the earth, right? 
But here we see again, but here there's a little bit of perhaps a change in relationship between man and beast. He says, and the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth. So there seems to be some kind of, perhaps maybe there's a dynamic change, right? They were all in the ark together, all the animals and and Noah and his wife and the sons and their wives. And I assume they all kind of got along in the ark for a year. I would hope so, right? Man is still over the living creatures, but now with fear and terror. Man is no longer just a steward of the animals, but he will be a feared hunter as well, right? So I thought that's kind of interesting. But in addition to a seemingly change in relationship, perhaps, between man and beast, diet changes as well. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant, right? If you go back to Genesis 1.29, then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth as food for you and the beasts, Right? So there's a dietary change. Man began as vegetarians. Now they can potentially be carnivorous. Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise God for that, right? (laughs) Maybe perhaps the best thing that came out of the fall. I don't know. Supplantation, right? I don't know if supplantation is around anymore because of COVID and all that kind of stuff. There was one near us that, that closed down. Supplantation was nice. It made you feel healthier. But by the time I got to the car, I was hungry. You know what I mean? I thank God for the barbecues, Korean barbecues, all-you-can-eat food, the steaks, Brazilian barbecues, gift from God, right? But I think there's a practical reason for this coming off the flood. The people needed to eat, right? They probably needed to take time to grow crops again cultivate land again. So perhaps this is another way, practical way of God supplying food for man and woman, for the people, right? And there probably is a deeper spiritual reason for this. Um, But this is one instance where I don't, I personally don't need a deep spiritual reason for it. I'm just thankful. (laughs) I'm just thankful that we can eat meat. You know, uh, I would just say, this is not like a big spiritual point, but I would just say, you know, I'm thankful we can eat meat. I'm going to enjoy meat because in eternity, I don't think we're going to be eating meat. So enjoy it while you can. That's, that's my, if there's a point that you remember today, don't let that be that one. Okay. But a key point in all this is what? Life will continue after the flood and be allowed to thrive. Think about that. God just gets judgment upon sinfulness of man. And there's a renewed start here. And still he blesses them. And he gives them the opportunity to not only live, but to thrive. Multiply. Fill the earth. Just the, the, the restriction. One dietary restriction is given. Do not eat meat with blood. Verse 4. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. If you remember, right? The thoughts and intents of man's heart was evil continually. 
Specifically, it was violence. Violence that filled the earth. <coughs> we saw this glorified by Cain's descendant Lamech in chapter 4, verse 23 to 24. Here God declares, there will be an account for bloodshed. Blood will be required for the shedding of blood of another. You think God is serious about the sanctity of life, right? Right, this wasn't declared earlier, but after all this he says, there will be an account for bloodshed, for murder. And it's interesting how blood will take on a special significance in Scripture. Blood represents life literally, right? We can't live without blood. Blood is a part of everything in our being, in our bodies to function. All the systems we have, we need blood. Blood represents life literally, but also symbolically throughout Scripture. Blood is essential for our physical life. Blood will also be required for the remission of sin, for our forgiveness, for eternal life. In Hebrews, I don't know, if the, do I have this up here? I don't think I have this verse up here. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, and according, do I have it? I don't, okay. And according to the law, in Hebrews 9, 22, it says, one must also say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. We'll eventually get to this more as we go on in Exodus and we get into the law. I don't know when we'll get there. We'll get there. I, I don't want to promise. All right. God reinforces this principle of the sanctity of life. Because why God created us in his image. And he holds it with high value. He is created in his image. God puts more value to the creation of man than even the beasts of the earth, of the animals. And I think sometimes people get a little diff- you know, get a little twisted a little bit, right? We can all love animals, right? You guys love animals? But there are sometimes it seems like people love animals a lot more than people. You know? Have you ever watched a movie where you have a family or something who's in danger? Their life is being threatened. And they're in danger and they have a dog with them. And people may die. And people are like, oh, that's kind of, that's, that's too bad. But we expect the, family, the people to die in movies. But if they kill that dog, that is like the utter tragedy, right? More tears are shed for the dog than for the person. We tend to be that way. And there's a, there, I know there's a, there's a movie about that, right? You know, you do whatever you want. But if you do something to my dog... Now I'm out to get you, right? People seem to elevate animals more than people themselves. But it's interesting, these are the lone restrictions God gives Noah and his sons. He says, be blessed, be fruitful, fill the earth, eat whatever you want. Just do not eat the flesh with the blood. Do not murder. Verse eight, then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him saying, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off 
by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So here's the central theme in this passage. God declares his covenant. Key word there, his covenant, his covenant. Who did God make a covenant with? If you remember, chapter six, he makes his covenant with Noah, right? Before the flood waters came. Now God is making good with his promise, but now he extends his covenant to what? He extends his covenant to not just Noah, but his sons. He extends his covenant with their descendants after them. And he extends his covenant to every living creature that he has made to clarify the scope of his covenant now. He extends it to all successive generations and to all the earth. So now it's not just to Noah. Noah, his sons, their descendants, and all the people thereafter and all of creation, he makes this promise. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth and it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth and the bow and the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh when the bow is in the cloud Then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God gives a sign of the covenant for all creation throughout time. And what is that sign? The rainbow in the sky. And what is his promise? He will never again destroy man or earth with the flood waters as he had done before. It won't be repeated. For all generations thereafter, he will not destroy a second time by the waters. But what a beautiful reminder, right? The beauty of a rainbow in the sky. It's interesting, when you look in scripture, the rainbow, the the rainbow is, (coughs) excuse me, is seen in scripture describing the glory and presence of God. Ezekiel 128, when Ezekiel has this vision, he sees in verse 28, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. So this splendor and glory like the rainbow we see in the sky. In the presence and describing the glory of God. In Revelation, the apostle John has this vision of the throne room of God, the throne of God. And he was sitting There it is. And he was sitting, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. 
The splendor of glory, if you've ever seen a bright rainbow, the colors are glorious. It's beautiful. If you ever go into a jewelry store, you see all the gems and all the different colors, right? John also describes the foundation of the new city of Jerusalem being adorned by the precious stones that would display brilliance, this colorful brilliance. So God sets the beauty of the rainbow as a sign of his promise. The rainbow reminds us of God's beautiful presence, his beautiful glory. That's an awesome sign. That's a beautiful sign. It's just a, when we see a faint rainbow, right, we may see it faintly, but that's just a a little reminder, a glimpse of the brilliant glory of God's presence. That's why I think it's an evil tragedy that the significance of the beauty of the rainbow has been hijacked. It's been hijacked by the LGBTQ community to represent, and it's all the way back in when it was introduced in 1978. Ever since then, it became a representation of their community, of their cause, their belief, their, their lifestyle. But isn't that just typical of man's sinfulness? We take what, what was supposed to be to represent God's glory, to represent him, and we take it to represent our own glory and even our own sinfulness, right? Man has turned the, the rainbow into an opportunity to glorify and parade man's sinfulness in place of God's mercy and glory. I hate that personally. Because it's like now it's like you can't have a rainbow without like implying something else. That bothers me. That we take what was supposed to represent God's glory to represent what man wants to glorify. So when we look up at a rainbow, we ought to remember not only God's promise, but his glory, his glorious presence, right? Let me wrap up with this. Something to marinate over. Something to think about, right? Flavor our minds a bit, right? To really kind of let our minds marinate on this point. I don't have multiple bullet points here. Rather, I just want to encourage us to think about this one question. Why a covenant? Why a covenant? Why did God make a promise? I was thinking about this a lot. Why did he have to make a promise? Right, a covenant relationship involves promises, it involves commitment, involves assurances, involves trust, What does this tell us about God that he says, I make a covenant with you? What does that tell us about God? Well, one, obviously, God is a God of promises. God is a God of promises. Keeping his word. Keeping our word is a godly character, right? Keeping your word, being known to keep your word is a godly character character. Making promises should not be held lightly. We shouldn't loosely make promises, right? Parents say, can you take out the trash? Yes, I will. Make sure you do it. I promise, right? We can say that. We say that a lot. 
Making promises, we should hold that in good value, high value. Keeping our word is a godly character. Our wedding vow is a sacred promise. What we say in the beginning is kept throughout. It is a sacred vow, a promise we make before God to our spouse. It's a sacred vow. We often make promises, though, to prove ourselves worthy, don't we? Right? You make promises to prove yourself worthy. Someone, you tell somebody they're not sure if they trust you, you say, I promise. I'm going to prove myself to you to be worthy of it, to get the job done. We want to prove ourselves to others, so we make promises. We often make promises to validate our word, right? We say promise so that people can trust our word, that we are a person of our word. What we say we're going to do, we're going to do it, so we make promises. They validate our character, right? They validate our ability. But why did God make his promise, right? God doesn't need to make any promises, God doesn't need to make promises to prove himself to us, right? As though that if he, that our trust validates him anymore, that if we trust him more, then he is more valid or he is more trustworthy. God is God. He doesn't have to promise to make himself more valuable or more to validate himself or to make himself more trustworthy. God can simply do whatever he wants. But that doesn't seem to be his character, right? A promise is an assurance of what will be done, right? It's a commitment to follow through with what is yet to be fulfilled. When you promise something, it's a commitment to what is not yet done. A promise fulfills and validates faith, right? Promise fulfilled (laughs) validates faith and affirms character, When you fulfill a promise, you're not only speaking of your character, but you're laying down a case to be trusted, right? Promise fulfilled speaks of this sense of trustworthiness. And a covenant relationship involves commitment. It involves assurance. It involves character. It involves trust. And God makes it clear, this is the relationship he created for us to have with him. That we are to have this covenant relationship. He desires this covenant relationship with him so that he will be faithful to keep his word, to keep his promises, and he wants us to enter in that relationship with him. That covenant relationship. That's why I say, you know, for people, I give give marital advice to people. They're about to get married. And they wonder if they're the one for them, right? You have to make sure that you will be able to keep your promises from beginning to end. Till what? Death do you part, right? You will be able to keep your word, keep your promise with that person. So when God creates this relationship, He's saying, I am giving you all the reasons to trust me. I am making my promise to you. I am giving you every assurance of trust that you can trust me. 
I will keep my promises to you. That's a beautiful thing about God. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing about God. We will see as we go along, God is laying down the foundation for faith and not only what he will do in that present, but what he will do in the future. From creation to the cross, we see God's foreshadowing, his promise of true salvation, eternal salvation, redemption, and life. We'll see the bigger picture of all this next week, but I wanna end with this thought. We've made many broken promises, right? We can all say we have all broken promises. We've probably hurt a lot of people with broken promises, disappointed them. We've also all been hurt by broken promises, I'm sure, right? Disappointed. Promises we expected, we thought would be held. But the Lord God will be faithful to us. God is a God of promises. He will be faithful to his promises. And the key thing for us is to understand his word, to know what he promises. That's key, right? To know his word, to understand his promises. And may we be faithful in that covenant relationship with the Lord. May we be faithful to trust in the God of promises. We can have assurance that he enters, that we can enter a covenant relationship with God that is certain, that is sure. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that Lord, your intentions for us is to live, to be blessed and live abundantly. Enjoy what you have created and more importantly to enjoy relationship with you, the God of promises, the God of covenant, the God who is faithful to his word. But Lord, I know we mess that up. We can be so unfaithful, untrustworthy, sinful, disobedient. And yet, Lord, you still extend the hand of forgiveness, your grace, your mercies. Thank you, Lord God, for your reminder, not only of your promise to not destroy the earth with the floods like you did before, but it's also a promise of your presence and your glory. Thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.